When you have a whole generation of people who've essentially started their careers in a remote basis where life and work are kind of the same thing, it makes sense that people are kind of struggling to grapple with the idea of separating those again and the imbalance that could come based on their life experience so far. One of the iconic scenes of office space is the commute and how soulless it is. And now we're talking about how soulless it is to not commute. <laughs> and so I find it interesting is that, you know, I like our version of the world. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Robbie Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Ricky, I was planning on us being in studio together, but I think you got strep, huh? Yeah, a little under the weather. It's something that I have gotten like so many times in my lifetime. It's incredible, but yeah. You've gotten strep many times? So many times. I'm just one of those people. I'm like a Petri dish for it. I don't know why, but um, yeah, but we were out of studio last week and the latter half of the week you were down in Dallas at a podcast conference that got quite a lot of uh, media attention. How was that? Yeah, this is the podcast movement conference and I was I just stopped there on my way back from L.A., to do a panel with the folks at Athletic Greens and which is a weird thing to do in and of itself. I've never like been to a podcast conference and you know, I'm used to political conferences and education conferences. There's a whole different vibe, but Ben Shapiro showed up, you know, the Daily Wire had a booth there and like a very prominent booth and Ben Shapiro apparently showed up just to, I guess, check out the booth and leave. And Mm -hmm. The podcast conference sent out a tweet apologizing for Ben Shapiro's appearance, which I find really interesting because they had already agreed to have this booth from Daily Wire with Ben Shapiro's photo on it. And just because he arrived, I guess they, I guess the implication is that he created, Ben Shapiro created an unsafe space. And I don't know, mm-hmm. I felt pretty safe. I'm not afraid of Ben Shapiro, Ricky. Yeah, I think the the proof here is that they were just reacting to the outrage of it and, and the attention because they were planning to theoretically host his company in some sort of way. But then as soon as people got upset, they they literally used the word unsafe, I think, right? Unbelievable. Yeah, you know, as anybody who listens to this podcast for a long time knows, I'm not a fan of Ben Shapiro's. I, I don't love a lot of his ideas, but I'm not afraid of them. And I think I actually would have been cool to run into him at this conference to ask him a few questions, you know, not like hostile questions. I'm just curious. (laughs) I'm very curious about Daily Wire's business model, their intentions. Well, it's also very counterintuitive that a podcast festival of all things would be what would be censoring ideas and a diversity of opinions and debate and conversation. That's, that's pretty rich. Yeah, well, the thing is, there is a line to draw, right? I'm just, I wouldn't draw it at the Daily Wire. And honestly, it's a technical conference, right? So even if like whatever production company that creates some of these more outlandish podcasts shows up, I'm like, I don't know, like, I'm not sure viewpoint discrimination is the point of a a podcast conference like that. But all that being said, you know, my travel... Yeah, right. Um, I did so. I put something in social media defending Ben Shapiro. Obviously, some of my friends on the left hated it. Some people on the right cheered it on. But my point isn't that I love him or the Daily Wire, but that like we're grown ups, we can handle disagreement. Um, I'm actually just going to stay on the road. And right after this recording, I am going down to Lehigh County, Pennsylvania to go talk to voters down there. We have Wes and Ava from our team who've been down there for a few days, just, you know, collecting audio, talking to people and getting a sense for what, you know, which way 
independent, undecided voters are going uh, in the coming Senate and gubernatorial elections down there. So that'll be pretty fun. And so I'll be I'll come back with some stories to tell for Thursday's episode. Awesome. Well, safe travels out there. And Ravi, what do we have today? So on today's show, Mark Zuckerberg goes on Joe Rogan and he sounds more like a person than we're used to. We'll go through the top takeaways from what they covered. Then we'll head over to Fairfax, Virginia, where one of the country's top high schools is playing host to a heated debate over equity and admissions. And we've got a couple updates for you on the Mar-a-Lago affidavit and tennis star Novak Djokovic missing the U.S. Open over his vaccination status. But first, it seems like the entire internet is talking about one thing lately, the concept of quiet quitting. Everybody's got a take on this. It seems like everybody I've talked to in my life wants to talk about this article. Uh, What does this term even mean, quiet quitting? So basically, it's like the antonym of hustle culture and the idea that you always put your job first and you're you're going 100% even when it's above and beyond what's being asked of you. And it basically originated on TikTok. Um, That's kind of where The conversation started and then every major news outlet picked it up, which is interesting. It it definitely struck a nerve, but one prominent TikTok we pulled. So let's roll that clip. I recently learned about this term called quiet quitting, where you're not outright quitting your job, but you're quitting the idea of going above and beyond. You're still performing your duties, but you're no longer subscribing to the hustle culture mentality that work has to be your life. The reality is it's not, and your worth as a person is not defined by your labor. That's kind of the sum of it. And for people who are just listening, he's like reaching out and touching a bubble machine and part of it. It's like, it's, it's a little cringy in my opinion. It feels a little little like, oh, I'm woe is me sort of vibes. But essentially, there's, there's all different versions of what this means. It could be just delineating a work-life balance. It could be um, closing your laptop at a certain time of the day. And so there's there's a whole scale of what quiet quitting means or just kind of passive aggressively pulling back from, from work period and not really keeping your boss in the loop. Well, but- uh, Ricky, I think he says your worth as a person is not defined by your labor. And I would say your worth is not solely defined by your labor, but if I'm your boss, your worth to me as your, as your boss is pretty much defined by your labor, yeah. right? Like it's kind of silly to me, but I do think that this term is almost a misnomer, right? This is not, they're not quitting as you're saying, right? They're just, and this seems well, they, like a time- They're kind of quitting trying though, is essentially- yeah. But this yeah. is not new to Gen Z, right? We used to call them slackers. Like I'm, I'm a millennial, but I, I think I came up in Gen X culture. There's all, if you watch any Gen X movie, basically, there are people slacking off, whether they're working in the mall or a record store or whatever. This stuff is time-honored tradition. You know, back in Riemann's ha- hardware store in Staten Island, we were quiet quitting all the way back then. You know, it's... I think that a lot. this is almost a rite of passage in a certain way. What I don't love, though, is this sort of advice giving to people. Like the, the gentleman who did this video, I believe, is an engineer. I'm pretty sure if I'm his boss at his engineering company, I wouldn't be too happy about uh, what some of the things that he's saying. And especially if I'm somebody who has to drive across a bridge that he's designing, I'm probably also not pretty happy about some of the things that he's saying. And in general... I think if I'm a hustler, which I would recommend anybody in their 20s to be, it's one thing to be quiet quitting at your job at Contempo at the mall. It's another thing to be quiet quitting in your first job out of college that's going to define your career moving forward. You start quiet quitting in that job and that's going to 
create some real problems for you for the rest of your life. Yeah, definitely. I think the, f- the foresight is not really being talked about among these advocates of quiet quitting. And there are some people who have just become like total proponents of it. And they're giving advice on TikTok and they're telling people how to do it and how to delineate their time. And like, it's very different job to job. And like, of course, there's more menial jobs where your labor or your your potential output in the long term might not have as much of a payoff. There's, you know, you could be just doing a summer job and saying like, screw it, I'm just not going to like fold this shirt as nicely. But it's it's very different to see these young adults who are actually starting their career start to advocate that. But one thing that's interesting is you're kind of making the same point, speaking of the Daily Wire, as Matt Walsh did recently with the fact that this is not a new uh, phenomenon. And he had some pretty hot takes. The point is that millennials and Gen Z aren't sparking a revolution here. They're experiencing laziness. The only difference is that they're narcissistic enough to think they invented it. Second, um, if, if, if you want to do the bare minimum, that's fine. Okay, that's, uh, that's mediocrity. And if you want to live a mediocre life, you're welcome to it. Many people before you have chosen that path and many people after you will do the same. That's why it's mediocrity. Just, just don't pretend that you're putting in less of an effort at your jobs so that you can invest more of your time into more enriching pursuits and passions. Now, that may be what a very small fraction of the quiet quitters do, but it's not how it works for the vast majority. So actually, I have a little bit of a point of disagreement with both of you here. I do think that there is a truth that this has been happening for a long time, but I think it's a lot more widespread now. And I think there's a variety of reasons behind that. But there's a measurable decrease in worker productivity from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. They found it fell 2.5% since just 2021 on a per worker basis of how productive people are. Gallup um, estimated that unhappy and disengaged workers could have cost the um, economy as much as $7.8 trillion this past year. And there's tons of stats to show that employee engagement is down and Gen Zs and millennials are among the worst, that they find less purpose in their work, that they tend to prioritize a work-life balance more often, and that job dissatisfaction is at an all-time high. And there's a ton of different causes for why this might be the case, aside from just the fact that the labor market is strong and employees feel like they have the leverage. But when you have a whole generation of people who've essentially started their careers or spent most of their careers in a remote basis where life and work are kind of the same thing oftentimes and everything kind of blurs and blends together, it makes sense that people are kind of struggling to grapple with the idea of separating those again and like the imbalance that could come based on their their life experience so far. It's funny to me because the seminal movie about Gen X versions of this is Office Space, which I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, but you know, one of the iconic scenes of Office Space is the commute and how soulless it is. And now we're talking about how soulless it is to not commute. <laughs> and so I find it interesting is that, you know, I like our version of the world, Ricky, where you and I on a normal day can either walk to work or for you it might be like a, you know, a subway stop or two. That's the ideal. And that's why I think a lot of people uh, in your generation and mine are trying to move into cities or in some cases, if you're in a suburb or something, try to get an office close enough to your house so that you leave the house, but you're not stuck in traffic all day. There's like a, a happy medium between these. But I do agree. With, you know, I never thought I would say this. And, I, and this is funny, given what I said at the top of this episode. You know, I agree with Walsh. And I think that he... In particular, when he's saying most of the people who are advocating for quiet quitting, it's not like they're, hey, I'm a, there's one version of it, which is, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to quit. I'm going to surf. I'm going to write novels. I'm going to be a better parent. I'm going to be a better son. 
uh, I'm going to, you know, invest in my community and, and show up to the soup kitchen in the morning. If that's the version of quiet quitting that some people are doing, then I'm like all for it. But I agree with him that I, I bet a lot of, if not most of the people who are advocating for this don't yet have a replacement for the activity. And as somebody who has spent a lot of time mentoring young people in my life, whether they're my students or employees, what I would say is I would encourage the people around you to quiet quit if you're a young person and you should hustle. <laughs> you know, to, to quote Cal Newport, who wrote Deep Work, be so good they can't ignore you. Like attention management and hustle when you're in your 20s is the defining characteristic that makes somebody successful or not. And if some of the people watching these videos are just like, hey, yeah, now I'm just going to do the bare minimum, I think they're going to suffer some serious consequences. I agree. And I also think the use of this term, just because the word quitting is in it, is super alienating in a lot of ways. And it makes, you know, there are some legitimate arguments within this movement about just defining a work-life balance of not letting your work become your entire person, which I think is a healthy and important conversation that people should be having. But unfortunately, slapping this label across all those ideas and and the fact that that also encompasses such ridiculous versions of just like screw work and just do your thing, I think kind of it mutes a lot of the, the better arguments that some people are making here. Well, let's turn to another big story in the news. So Zuckerberg appeared on Rogan and you and I listened to, I think it was like two plus hours interview. And I would say this was an incredibly fascinating listen, even if uh, listeners aren't Rogan fans or even Zuckerberg fans. I would say listen to this interview because there are multiple parts of it that I think Add, you know, they they add so much to the the larger conversation about the role of social media in society, and also questions around polarization, misinformation, content moderation, etc. And there were there's a lot we could talk about here, but let's actually start with the biggest news ca- coming out of this interview was around uh, a back and forth over the Hunter Biden laptop story. Let's listen to the exchange between Rogan and Zuckerberg on this point. How do you guys handle things when they're a a big news item that's controversial? Like there was a lot of attention on Twitter during the election because of the Hunter Biden laptop story, the New York Post. Yeah, we had that too. Yeah. So you guys censored that as well? So we took a different path than Twitter. Um, I mean, basically the background here is the FBI, I think basically came to us some some folks on our team it was like hey um just so you know like you should be on high alert there was the, we we thought that there was a lot of russian propaganda in the 2016 election we have it on notice that basically there's about to be some kind of dump of of um uh, uh that's similar to that so just be vigilant so ricky what do you make of this exchange well i think there's a lot of unanswered questions here that we shouldn't get too carried away with um what is being said without addressing the gaps here, but we don't know like when this warning was. Was it right before the Hunter Biden laptop story came out with the New York Post, or was it way ahead of the election? It, I mean, you you can't ascribe that there was a specific mention of the Hunter Biden laptop, which I think a lot of people assumed. But um, we also don't know what exactly this warning was, and there are efforts from within the GOP to get the FBI to release the communications that they have, which I would be in favor of. I think transparency here is important. But, you know, this conversation about there's going to be or there's about to be a dump. It, if that was close to the Hunter Biden laptop situation, that's important 
to to mention. And the FBI did have the laptop in their possession. So it's not like they didn't know that that was something that was on the table. But to me, there's something even a little more chilling about like there's going to be Russian disinformation. Be vigilant because these these companies then will err on the side of censorship as Twitter did more so than Facebook. But it puts a lot of pressure on these companies to essentially be like the investigators and decide what's disinformation and what isn't. And here's an instance where something was suppressed that was actually true. But for me, the bottom line here is I don't want to get carried away and say like a lot of people on the right are that they directly, the FBI directly said, kill the Hunter Biden laptop story. But regardless, I think it sets a concerning precedent for people like myself who who are very strongly in favor of giving private private companies and social media companies an immunity to the First Amendment, even though they're the public forum in some senses. Because if you have this private-public coordination and they're effectively, in the end, whether or not this was specifically asked for, censoring truthful information because the government tipped them off on it, then they, they start to lose their their protection as a private entity. And I, I think this this coordination and collaboration, even though I think in some senses it's inevitable, the idea that you just say like, oh, good luck deciphering through what is and isn't Russian disinformation could potentially become very censorious and have adverse outcomes, which it did here. You know, and one interesting part of this is that Zuckerberg said in this interview at a different point, <laughs> we spend like $5 billion a year was the last stat on on sort of all this community integrity work. I mean, it's like like our kind of defense wow. budget. It's like, I mean, just to put the numbers in perspective. I, I mean, that's, how you call it a defense budget. I mean, it's, it's basically, it's like, <laughs> I, I mean, it's, it's, um, to, to defend the integrity of the, of the community, but it's like, it's, I mean, it is, I think, yeah. bigger than. Than, than the defense budgets of probably most countries. I'm kind of with him on this in the sense that he uh, is echoing, I think, what broad swaths of American society and government are saying, which is that there are massive efforts by foreign entities to manipulate the American citizenry using social media. And I'll point to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee under Republican leadership. And in volume two of that report, they talked specifically about social media interference from foreign governments. And this was a five-part report about Russia in particular. And the first sentence of the report says the following. In 2016, Russian operatives associated with the St. Petersburg-based Internet Research Agency, IRA, used social media to conduct an information warfare campaign designed to spread disinformation and societal division in the United States. Masquerading as Americans, these operatives used targeted advertisements, intentionally false news articles, self-generated content, and social media platform tools to interact with and attempt to deceive tens of millions of social media users in the United States. The campaign sought to depolarize Americans on the basis of societal, ideological, and racial differences, provoked real-world events, and was part of a foreign government's covert support of Russia's favorite candidate in the U.S. election. Uh, and then the, if you go through the findings, they talk all about how there, this was a massive effort and a continued effort that echoes a finding of the Mueller report and most American intelligence agencies and reporting that we see on this. And so there's so much attention paid to this laptop, right? This, And we've talked about it a few times, and I do think there were major missteps, especially at Twitter. But I'm not sure this is one of them because I do want my social media companies coordinating with U.S. intelligence in a, in a way that, for instance, shipping companies should be coordinating with U.S. intelligence. If there's terrorist threats to U.S. shipping lanes, I would want the U.S. government telling those shipping companies about those terrorist threats so that they can avoid them, just like I would want my social media companies avoiding uh, manipulation. 
Well, I think at the very least, there's nothing wrong with demanding transparency about what that communication is, because in the end, something that was legitimate ended up being suppressed and disparaged, as, as did the New York Post. And like, furthermore, this happened in a time in 2020 when people were still locked down and these social media companies had almost like a monopoly on Americans' communication and ability to talk to one another and share ideas and stories. I think it's a balance, right? Like we want to make sure that foreign governments aren't preying on our people while we also don't want to shut down legitimate content. And where I'm with you is that based on everything we know about the Hunter Biden laptop story, that is something that should be in the public domain and and people should be able to grapple with that information. Uh, let's talk, let's take a step back and go to like the first half of this interview, right? First half of this interview between Rogan and Zuckerberg wasn't about any of these polarizing topics, but it was actually about Meta's future and their massive investments in uh, what they call... Um, uh, AR and VR, so virtual reality and augmented reality, and and they spend $10 billion a year now on virtual and augmented reality. So they're spending $10 billion on augmented uh, and virtual reality, so double what they're spending on defense and content moderation and all of that. That's a decent amount of money. And they're releasing this new headset this October, and it, it sounds like Rogan and Zuckerberg demoed this headset before Zuckerberg went on and then they just talked about this headset for like an hour and like the future of virtual and augmented reality and the nature of social media generally and all that. What takeaways do you have from that first part of the conversation? I'm still kind of creeped out by this concept of this virtual world and allowing Zuckerberg to be the kind of God behind it, creating it here. Um, I, I find I find the idea that reality and and virtual reality like will bleed together in the future increasingly to be a little dystopian. But I think, you know, he does have some good points in the sense that so much of what is real to us now, it exists technologically. But I would say all in all, my impression of this interview is that I'm less scared of Zuckerberg being the god of this future universe because he actually seemed like a person less so than like almost all of his public appearances were like congressional hearings and stuff where he's sweaty and awkward and creepy. And he's more thoughtful than I think we've been able to hear from him just because he hasn't been talking about his intentions so much publicly recently. So all in all, that's that's my feeling. I'm still skeeved by the whole concept though of of meta and and living in this this fake world it feels very matrixy to me well i have a proposal for zuckerberg and musk which is i think they should meet in the middle whereas i want zuckerberg doing more of these off-the-cuff longer form interviews being more authentic musk possibly could use a little bit more restraint <laughs> and then if they meet in the middle i think they'll I think they'll both be better off. But you said something about living in this virtual world. There was an interesting exchange between Zuckerberg and Rogan about what really is real, the real world or not. It's, it's actually kind of wild. One of the thought experiments that I like to do is um, thinking about how few of the things that we physically have in the world actually need to be physical. You know, obviously things like chairs need to be physical, right? You're not going to be sitting mm -hmm. on a hologram. Food needs to be physical. But most entertainment type stuff, I mean, not just cards, but games, most media, TVs in the future probably won't need to actually be physical things. And they went on talking about this. And I think Zuckerberg, I, and once again, I highly recommend people listen to this, goes on and paints the vision of the world as he sees it. Very Ready, ready Player One-like and 
they they debate like well like what activities are better than others they talk about jujitsu a lot where like oh maybe that's not the kind of sport that'll work because it requires leverage versus like maybe like virtual tennis or something like that or or fencing where you don't really have to push up against another human being and all that but basically what he's saying is is there a real world there's like the digital world is real like it's actually something you experience yeah i just feel like at a certain point with this line of thinking though like like, why do we need to make everything that's reality digital? Like at, at some point there's, I don't know. I just, I don't feel like I need to live in some fake world when there's a real world in front of me. And when I think about this extrapolated out to the extreme, which I know is an extreme, but like, okay, then Zuckerberg's like, we'll get you a, a chair and a feeding tube and you can just go into the metaverse for the rest of your life. Like, I just, I, I think that, could be I like think we Wally. need to be, I think we need to be like, cautious in how we tread into this territory because it's completely unprecedented. And the idea that, I I don't know, it just makes me uncomfortable. And I think so much of human connection and just being a physical person with a body and experiences is at stake here. Um, the more and more that we go into this meta world and, you know, you think about things like Zoom and these meetings that we have and how people are unhappy not working with one another and collaborating in person. And, you know, there's, there's, I think there's a cost, there's definitely utility and there will be benefits, I'm sure. But I think there's a legitimate cost to just actually being a human being that's potentially at stake here. I don't know. But think about this, what happened today, right? You have strapped, we can't do this interview. So we're doing it over the equivalent of Zoom, right? We're doing it on Riverside. Now that's, to me, that's still the real world. Like there's nothing less real about this moment of my day relative to when I get in a car later on and, and drive to Lehigh County. So this is one version of using digital communication yeah, under totally his utility. world. Don't disagree. Yeah. We would put on a headset and it would it just enhance the experience. You'd be sitting at a table with me. We'd be recording this. Probably a better version of what we're doing right now. But also a step beyond that, like five years down the line, if that's an option, then theoretically you wouldn't have invested money in renting an office space in the first place. Maybe. There is an interesting I debate feel that like they, that's or discussion going, they have about this. I don't know. I think I think ultimately that's going to become inevitable and it's going to erode a lot of our our in-person connection. I think like a lot of things, like the Zoom debate is an interesting one right now. Like, yes, a lot more people are Zooming than they did before, but a lot of other people still say, hey, coming together in an office and having that serendipitous communication and just being physically present with other people is still something that's valuable. I think that will continue to be true even in the, the most robust version of the metaverse, just like people do all kinds of experiences in life that are quote unquote more authentic as they see it or more rustic as they see it, et cetera. Now it may become more niche, it may become more rare, but this technology, you know, technology has a way of, of, of taking on whether people like it or not. And I think individuals need to have a certain code, right? I think as you, you, you as a libertarian probably agree with this, there's nothing, there's no entity that's gonna stop any of this stuff. So each individual has to decide on their own, including every company, where their line is and what version of quote unquote real life they want a preference. A final point on this note is that I can see a world where that is no longer an individual choice and where economies become so intertwined and so virtual that you you don't really have an option at a certain point in time. So I I'm, I think it might potentially become a necessity in some ways, but it's one of those things like I don't I don't want to I'm not a total luddite. I don't want to destroy VR headsets and say we're never going to do that. But I think it's it's one of those things where it's such an important um an important 
new innovation that can go really awry and we need to be very careful and not just go headfirst into it without thinking about these. I think the question though is always like, what do you do about it, right? Like I agree with you. I'm actually like kind of a light when it comes to technology. As you know, I, I put my phone in a box for hours a day, but at the same time, there's an inevitability about it writ large. You know, there's an interesting part of the interview where Rogan talks about his own kids and how he's, you know, he's kind of frustrated, you know, sitting at dinner watching his kids staring at their phones, but he still lets them use them, but he'll restrict it in certain places and all that. And I think parents in general are dealing with this. Educators are dealing with this. We had the, the debate around uh, phones in schools uh, a couple of weeks ago. And I just think that it's hard to imagine what or who is going to step in and stop these other than parents, institutions, yada, yada. It's probably not going to be the government. You know, there's, there's not going to be some mandate on high. Uh, I do want to say, though, uh, there's one last part of this interview that was fascinating, and it had to do with algorithms. What do you think about the argument that algorithms in general, because the fact that they sort of appeal to human nature, like they, they amplify the things that you're interested in, and unfortunately, people are interested oftentimes in things that upset them. Do you, what do you think about the argument that this is too, whether it's too influential or it has too much impact on people and that a better solution would be to just let everything exist how it exists and don't have any kind of algorithm and let people find what they find and share what they share and just let it exist in sort of the free market of ideas? Yeah, so we actually started there, right? Because yeah. at the beginning, we didn't have the technology to to do this kind of ranking. And the very first thing that you run into is if you don't do any kind of ranking, the system gets gamed in different ways. So if you're not ranking anything, the most recent stuff shows up at the top. So, okay, so what do you get? You get a bunch of businesses that want to make sure that you see their stuff so they just post constantly they post like 50 times a day mm. so that way they've always posted something within the last 10 or 20 minutes that way it's always at the top of feed the other thing that you get is like you miss obviously really important stuff all right so like my cousin is pregnant and when she has a baby she's going to post about that and like that post better be at the top of my feed because i don't want to miss that ricky i don't love this answer that zuckerberg gave first of all if, if what he's saying is true then why not just give us the opportunity to toggle back and forth between the two? That's an easy coding thing. Like you just hit a button saying, I like chronological better. The second is that if those businesses are posting five posts in a row every hour, I'm just going to unfollow that business. I, I think you're right that there's a market incentive for businesses not to be too spammy. And I think the same thing happens with email lists, like businesses that are sparing and actually tell you about like a meaningful sale end up with more subscribers than the businesses that are in your inbox every single day because nobody wants that. But I, I mean, I, I think Twitter has the the option to toggle between the two, right? You can do chronological do yeah, now on I Twitter. Twitter I'm much, pretty sure so, it was like yeah. a recent thing where you can now switch between the algorithmic and the chronological one. And like, I'll admit that I don't like the chronological one as much as I thought I would because you do get people's replies that aren't really that important to you or the tweets that really aren't that great versus the algorithm does pull very interesting things. And I think there's a way to have like a blended system too. But yeah, I I don't know. Because he even right before this in this conversation, he's talking about how he doesn't like that social media amplifies negative emotions. And so their algorithms try not to amplify stuff that people are outraged by. But the idea that 
that those algorithms give them that much control and and discretion over what sort of content is good for people because they think of think that's the case and that's Zuckerberg's opinion is um, a little weird to me. So I'd agree that having the having the the medium of at least being able to toggle or having a hybrid of like here's the most popular things happening today and then here's the rest of your feed. What's left out of the conversation is that he has a business reason to love the algorithms because the chronological is much harder to monetize. And there are all sorts of tea leaves throughout the second part of the conversation where every time Zuckerberg is asked to defend, he, he's way less specific and compelling when it comes to the stuff that makes him money today, the social media platforms like Instagram and Facebook, than he is compelling about the stuff that, that he's building for the future. And I think that's part of a reflection of the time he's spending, but also a reflection of the fact that he's taking advertising revenue that is largely generated through these algorithms and pouring it into his passion project. And I kind of like his passion project, but what worries me is that 20 years down the line, he's then going to be using this meta passion project to fund something else. And so meta is going to turn into this, you know, you know, algorithm driven hellscape that Facebook has become right now. And so this is where I become less sympathetic to him, but we'll link to this, uh, this interview for our listeners. You can make up your minds about it. Let's move on to another story. Let's go to Virginia where in Fairfax County, they have one of the most acclaimed schools in the country, Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology. And it's also home to one of the fiercest fights over equity and, and emissions anywhere in the country. Uh, Ricky, this is the number one high school in the country, according to U.S. News and World Reports. Public high school, right? Uh, public high school. And they were a magnet school. And what wound up happening here was they had a, a traditional admissions test process for the school. And it yielded a student body that was overwhelmingly or overrepresented, according to critics of the school, Asian Americans and critics felt it was underrepresenting uh, underrepresenting black and Hispanic students. So the the admitted class was seventy three percent Asian American students uh, before these changes. And you know, in one of those years, it was only thirty two black students, forty seven Hispanic students. Post Floyd, they there was a an uproar within the community. Uh, the school board and the school leadership change the rules. And, you know, it's kind of a complicated series of steps made it so that the admissions test mattered less. And they basically tried to use some some tools to increase the racial diversity of the school at the expense of Asian Americans. And that's what they got. And there's this article from Education Next that we're, that we're going to link to from one of the parents who's critical of these changes, chronicling just how parents uh, of Asian American students and others have been incensed by these changes. What do you make of all this? To finish that stat that you mentioned, before the change of admissions policy, they admitted a 73% Asian class, and then it went down all the way to 54%. So um, even though race wasn't explicitly mentioned in their new admissions criteria, as you mentioned, the George Floyd event was the catalyst for it, and that has been the effect, and that was pretty clearly the intended effect. But I mean, I don't blame parents for being outraged about this because of course the George Floyd tragedy is one thing on its own, but that doesn't mean start discriminating against children on the basis of like saying that merit doesn't matter now. Let's throw out merit. It feels to me like 
like this sort of narrative typically is, is like the soft bigotry of low expectations here, where the idea is that we need to lower the bar so that other people can get in instead of, instead of trying to do community outreach or, or send recruiters to schools that are, and, and say like, Hey, here's this school. Like if you, if you reach this mark, then um, you can, you can apply for admission here based on your merit. And here's, here's the, the level to achieve. And of course there's economic factors that I think are fair to balance, but to say that there are actual students who are being denied spots that their academic scores guaranteed them or would have guaranteed them just a year before, many of them are children of immigrants, to say that their effort doesn't matter as much feels very unfair to me. Yeah, and in this article, you can read some some of the back and forth that happened in some of these meetings. You had a situation where you had Indian, Chinese, Peruvian parents going to the school board meeting chanting racist to describe these changes. And then you had progressive activists chanting back, including a teacher's union representative calling the parents uh, a stunt. Uh, you had an indivisible leader you know, saying something equivalent indivisible being a progressive group. The parents uh, of, you know, the Asian American students and others who were critical of these changes tried to get a an audience with Terry McAuliffe, the Democratic candidate for governor at the time in Virginia, and were told that they could they potentially could get a meeting if they paid $20,000 in contributions. Glenn Youngkin, the now governor and was candidate back then, uh, met with them. A lot of these parents have, have become activists and organizers for Youngkin. And I stopped there to say, as somebody who has been a Democratic operative and as somebody who on the show has been very critical of some of the overreach of anti-critical race theory proponents, to say that this is an example that people need to pay attention to where what these parents are asking for is different than what I would say some of the more extremists in the anti-CRT movement are asking for, right? They're not saying, I don't want my school to teach an accurate history uh, of America. They're not even saying anything from what I can tell, at least in this article about DEI and all that kind of stuff. What they're saying is, look, uh, I don't want my kids to be discriminated against. And there are quotes in this article where the school board members explicitly acknowledge, acknowledge that's exactly what they're doing. So Stella Pekarski, who's a school board member, was texting with another school board member. And they had things to say like, this is a mission process that would, quote, kick out Asians. Uh, school board member replying, say, there there has been an anti-Asian feel underlying some of this. Hate to say it, lol. And then another quote saying, they're discriminated against in this process. So they were explicitly acknowledging uh, the school board members uh, who crafted this policy that this was discriminatory against Asian Americans. They're getting rid of a test that is an objective measure and trying to replace it with things that are preferencing one race over another. And then when pushed about it, the school district is no, saying this is race blind, where everything about the way they went about this was to make it as not race blind as possible. I think the the implications of this situation, as you mentioned, it's not as clearly politicized as a lot of other issues surrounding race in schools and admissions. Um, I think this could potentially be a really important and critical court case. Um, they sued the school and won the initial case, but there's an appeal. And in the interim, the Fourth Circuit allowed them to maintain the policy while this appeal is processing. And the parents are saying that they are willing to take this up to the Supreme Court if that's what it takes. I, I think this moment, it's just such a clear, crystallized instance of 
just saying, no, this very objective, clear merit-based thing is not our our priority anymore. And we have other political priorities that are taking precedent in this situation. I'm interested to follow this case. There, there'll be more hearings this fall, but I, I think it's it's panning, panning out to be a very, very important one. It comes in the context of the Supreme Court taking up the affirmative action case about discrimination against Asian Americans at Harvard, which is something yeah, that we're going to be covering extensively a throughout private the university versus a public a school public here school. and younger kids too. Like it's even more damning to me. It is on the face of it, just to put my lawyer cap on, going to be harder for these parents to win this case than the Harvard. I think the Harvard case is a full, for reasons we'll go into it in the fall and we've talked about a couple months ago, the Harvard case is a full-blown guarantee they're going to, the Supreme Court is going to favor the plaintiffs in that case. I think in this case, it's trickier because the actual mechanisms that they crafted are not the same in Harvard. In Harvard, they're, they're explicitly having race-based admissions policies. In this case, they were like, oh, we'll take a certain percentage from all the schools and yada, yada, yada. So it'll be harder. Now, the Supreme Court, I mean, the uh, the school board members here have made it, the plaintiff's lives a little easier by having all these text messages acknowledging their, their either racial intent or acknowledgement of the racial effects of this, which will help the plaintiffs. There's one other wrinkle here, though, I want to bring to the table, which is there's this book called An Inconvenient Minority by this, this gentleman named Kenny Zhu, who's part of the plaintiff's and he writes about this particular fight over the school and talks about something I didn't realize, which is that the school board invited Ibram Kendi, who we just talked about on a previous episode, who wrote How to Be Anti-Racist, to come talk to the school board. And they had a closed meeting with him. And then they bought a bunch of his books as they were crafting this policy. And Kendi you know, in his book says the following, the use of standardized tests to measure aptitude and intelligence is one of the most effective racist policies ever devised to degrade black minds and legally exclude black bodies. So this is the intersection of all of these things. The intersection of Kendi's ideas, these school board politics, where they're trafficking in these ideas, anti-testing ideas, which I think is in many ways against some of the immigrant work ethic and the ladders to success that people count on in the society. One other interesting wrinkle here is that these parents were coordinating with other parents around the country, including here in New York City, who are fighting back against other measures. So this is turning into a national movement. Absolutely. Well, I think we'll have to um, watch how this goes in the fall. And I know we also have an update on on Mar-a-Lago and the new affidavit release. So Ravi, what's what's going on there? The Justice Department released a highly redacted version of the affidavit that was used to justify the raid on Mar-a-Lago. As a clarifying fact, an affidavit is not the same as an indictment, which we do not have in this case. An affidavit is a document the government uses and brings to a judge to justify probable cause for a search, essentially saying, hey, here are the reasons why we should be able to enter the premises of you know some place like Mar-a-Lago in this case and uh, and search for very particular things. This is a long document, but much of it's redacted. There are a couple of interesting things that came out of here. It details uh, the fact that the government had previously uh, secured documents from Mar-a-Lago that included uh, information going up to the highest levels of classification, including human intelligence sources, which is the kind of stuff that we were most that the government's most concerned about because it could lead to, you know, targeting of people abroad who are helping us. Uh, it also it referenced obstruction of justice as a um, as a rationale here, and talked about a little bit of the back and forth between Trump's team 
and the Department of Justice uh, and the various offices it, you know, entrusted with keeping our records in the federal government. I wouldn't say there was too much in here to really add like a lot to either the critics of Trump here, which I would put myself in that camp, or the people who are claiming some kind of FBI overreach. There was just so much not in this document that the claim, the, the sort of their basis for going in there, I think, is pretty clear and unimpeachable. But there isn't a lot of detail. One of the memes I saw, kind of circulating the internet, is how some pages of this are literally black and white stripes from the redaction. But Ravi, so so we know a little more about the documents that they retrieved. But what questions are still unanswered here that are important and pertinent? Yeah, there's a few here. I think one is the larger question over. Is the Justice Department just trying to get these documents back or are they they planning to charge Trump? And I would say I lean towards the latter just because the language seems to signal that there's ongoing cooperation, which means there may be ongoing activity going on here. And there's a memo that they issued justifying the redactions in which they indicated a, quote, significant number of civilian witnesses who are cooperating and cooperating with the investigation, and they cite their safety and privacy, the witnesses, including the safety and privacy of law enforcement personnel. And uh, there's there was other couple things in here about like why they were concerned. You know, there's this big debate going on between Trump's team and the Department of Justice and, and supporters of the Department of Justice essentially saying, Trump's team is saying, all right, the president uh, he declassified all these documents, right? And I think this is a catch-22. Uh, for the president because the, and this gets to the obstruction charge. If he, in fact, declassified all these documents, then he then is acknowledging he knew he had these documents. If he acknowledges he knew he had these documents, he's admitting to the, the literal language of the statute, which says declassified or not, if you have these documents in your possession and don't return them, that is a crime. That's the catch-22 here. Now, I don't buy that he declassified these documents. And even his own lawyer, Evan Corcoran, said, uh, and this is quoted in the document, I believe, that Trump has the power and authority to declassify, but didn't go so far as to say he did declassify. Uh, There's also all this sort of detail around the fact that these documents were mixed in with newspapers, magazines, photos, yada, yada. They were removed from their protective covering. I think no sensible person looks at this and says this is a responsible act. Never mind the fact that if there are tons of civilian sources who are able to, who are cooperating with Department of Justice to say where these documents were, that's concerning that there's all these civilians who knew where all these documents were that potentially have to do with human intelligence sources. So I would say it, generally this is part of a pattern of stuff that doesn't look good for Trump, but we don't know yet whether charges are coming. Well, enough about that, Ricky. Let's talk about tennis. So there's an interesting new revelation here in the vaccine mandate situation where Djokovic is withdrawing from the U.S. Open entirely. He recently also sat out tournaments in Cincinnati and Montreal. But what happened here is foreign citizens who are unvaccinated are not able to come to the U.S. or Canada. And, you know, the U.S. Open doesn't really have a lot of say over whether or not they're going to follow that. And so he's pulling out to avoid a situation that was similar to what happened in Australia to him at the turn of the year at the beginning of 2022, where he got a medical exemption to travel to Australia without a vaccine for a tournament. Then the government canceled his visa around a week later um, and detained him in Melbourne and 
10 days later, he lost his appeal and ended up getting deported and could not compete. So in this case, he's just not even trying in the first place, which it's frustrating to a lot of tennis fans, to people who are not into the vaccine mandates, and especially because he he played the same tournament last year and the fans aren't required to be vaccinated. And there isn't really the proof necessary to prove that it prevents transmission in the first place. And he's a young, healthy guy. So I think, you know, this is an example of a vaccine mandate kind of gone awry, in my opinion. So is this the government uh, that's the problem or the U.S. Yeah. Open authorities that are the problem yep. here? It's, they're just following the governmental policy here. So, But last year he was able to play. So it just it, it feels so illogical on so many levels that I think this is kind of one of those examples that's crystallizing why these mandates just don't have a lot of utility at this point in time. Yeah. And, you know, as and longtime listeners will know, I've been supportive of some of the mandates. And I think it's time... We're, we're long past time to get rid of most of them. And I think in a lot of places we have, thankfully, like I, I, there's very little evidence if you live your life, for instance, in New York, that that a lot of these more restrictive policies are in place, you know, based on most of the things that you do in public life in New York. You know, there you and I were in though. LA outside of the Bill Mars. Yeah, well, we were laughing outside of the Bill Mars studio because LA is very different. <laughs> I would say. Yeah, I was still I, I doing the masks. Yeah, I had an Uber driver not let me. I think we both were dealing with the same issue on the same day. I, I had an Uber driver not let me in the car because I didn't have a mask on me. And I, I generally have been a proponent of mask kindness and all that, but I just think we're, we're way past that. And he didn't have a mask on him, and he was requiring me to wear it, and I was almost late to the show and all that. I think all that stuff is silly, and I also think this is silly, and I think one of the things that we need to do, especially those of us who've been proponents of some of these policies at earlier stages of the pandemic – one of the ways that we can heal as a society and move past it is to advocate for those that we even disagreed with at the height of all this stuff. So I think in that case, it's important for people like us, me, not you, because um, you were already there, to be like, look, I don't agree with what Djokovic was saying about the vaccine. I don't agree with his original decision. But at this point, it's non it doesn't make any sense to ban him from this country or from this particular sporting event for not having a vaccine. It's more punitive than it is science-based. And I hope that this is the last we hear of these types of things. I come at it from a little different perspective where I support his his right to have made that decision for himself medically the entire way through. But um, I come down in the same place as you. And certainly now more than a year ago or two years ago, this is a much less justifiable measure for sure. All right. Well, that's all we have today. Uh, I want to thank you. Uh, many of you have gone on and and sort of heeded my request to, to go on to whatever platform you listen or watch us and just drop us a, a five-star review and say what you love about us. And it's particularly important because, you know, a lot of people who are critics of the type of stuff that we're trying to do say that nuance uh, doesn't work in the media. And so what we really love to hear from you and, and, you know, tweet about us, share our podcast with your friends is because we think, and our audience growth over the past year has shown this, that nuance actually does have a place in American media and that actually having good faith disagreements and discussions across the divide, across different ideologies, 
is actually what a lot of people are asking for. So go to whatever platform you're on, make sure to subscribe to this podcast, say what you love about us, hit that like button if you're on YouTube, and we'll be back on Thursday. Hopefully, I'll have a lot to say about my trip down to Pennsylvania and what the the good voters of that state have to say about their Senate and gubernatorial elections. So that's it. We'll see you Thursday. Thursday.